Well, if you would, uh, turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and when you find your place there, also find Psalm 82 and hold your finger or place a book mark in that psalm as well because we will read both of those together this morning. Let me start with John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. The Gospel of John says this. At the time of the Feast of Dedication, at at that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, It is not written, or is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. You know, any good writer or speaker or author or preacher knows that the basic outline of any uh, good article or sermon or book is the following, introduction, body, and conclusion, or in Another way we could say is, tell them what you're going to say, tell them, and then tell them what you said. This is exactly what John does as the gospel writer that we've been studying throughout this harmony. We spent a lot of time in John, and so I thought this morning it would be important to go back and look and see um, how John is introducing uh, this idea of his, uh, the purpose of his gospel book. And, um, and how he concludes that, and then how, in our text this morning, that fits together. 
because it's very uh, purposeful this morning that we come to this passage where Jesus declares that he and the Father are one. So if you will, flip a couple pages backward to John chapter 1. Shouldn't be many, depending on, unless you have a large print Bible. And be reminded in John chapter 1, verse 1, John begins his, his gospel letter, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John then begins to explain in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, nowhere in that section do we see the name Jesus, and yet John will begin to build his case that this word, this preexistent eternal word, is the only Son of God who is Jesus Christ. Now, flip back to John chapter 20 and see John's conclusion. In verse 30. Now, John, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Introduction and conclusion. And so John's purpose as any good writer would be to make sure that he revisits and that all the pieces align so that he uh, communicates effectively the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and that he continues to do that throughout his book. Well, we come in John chapter 10 to the end of the first main section of John. And then by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... And the purpose of John, he concludes this section by reminding us that Jesus, the Son of God, is equal in every way to the Father. That their purposes are equal, that their their substance and their essence are equal, and yet they are distinctly different in person. Because Jesus is, as he is showing us, the eternal Son of God. And so that's the, that's the declaration this morning, the great declaration that Jesus is no mere man, that he is not the false teacher or the blasphemer that the Pharisees are portraying, but John is simply saying with the words of Jesus recounting for us that Jesus is declaring and identifying himself in the most clear and plain way possible, that he is the eternal Son of God. And as he says in the end, and by believing in his name, we may have life in him. And so Jesus will make his case this morning before the, uh, these Pharisees, before these religious leaders. He will make this, this case and identify himself on the... On the um, uh, at the time of the Feast of the Dedication, 
here in Jerusalem. And we'll look at three main ideas uh, this morning. Number one, we want to see Jesus as the omnipotent person of Christ. We also want to look at the indisputable, indisputable proofs of Christ. And lastly, the effective provision of Christ. All these things pointing to his deity and his glory. Now, we start off with uh, a time stamp, as any good writer, and especially these gospel writers give us. At the time, uh, John says, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, this comes months after Jesus has proclaimed at the conclusion of the Feast of the Tabernacles that he is the the light of the world. Later saying somewhere in between the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Feast of the the Lights or the Dedication, which normally occurred three months apart, Jesus in the middle of that says, I am the good shepherd. So he says, I am the the light of the world, and then a a month or so later, I am the good shepherd. And now at the end of our calendar year, but not for the Jews, in December, he's saying at this feast of the dedication, he says, I and the Father are one. This feast of the dedication was not a festival that was commanded in Scripture. We know of this festival It's probably one of the most familiar to us because we know of it as Hanukkah. We see our Jewish friends uh, lighting the menorah, all the candles. Well, Hanukkah came about not by command from Scripture, but in the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. And it was there during the, the reign of Alexander the Great where the Greeks came and, and, and as, as history shows us, Hellenized the known world, bringing great uh, uh, advances in literature and, and writing and education, uh, great advances. Uh, it, and, and of course, with the conquests of Alexander the Great, the, the Jews were uh, in somewhat slaved again by these greater nations, these greater empires. First, it was the Greeks. But upon the, uh, upon the death of Alexander the Great, his generals began to fight over his lands. And one of his generals, Antiticus Epiphanes, was a Syrian that was a general for Alexander the Great. And this man, fighting for the lands of Alexander's conquest eventually made his way to sack and take over Jerusalem. There in this, this uh, attack upon and this victory over Jerusalem, this Syrian uh, general who has now become the ruler of the Seleucids, he became uh, one of the greatest enemies of the Jews. These Jews, if you ask a Jew today, one of the greatest tragedies of their faith and religion, it would be in 167 BC when Antiochus went into Jerusalem and he, de- he destroyed uh, great um, uh, 
relics and and the the temple itself he didn't destroy the temple but he sacked the temple and he desecrated it he went in he took captive many of the jews and enslaved them he outlawed the jewish faith and he began to build an altar to zeus in the temple and sacrifice pigs in the temple the greatest offense to these jewish people And they called that the great desecration. He outlawed, as I said, the Jewish religion. No longer were they able to practice temple sacrifices, sacred observances. They could not even possess their own copy of the scriptures. Well, that wasn't going to sit well with the Jews. And so, a few years later, the Jews mounted a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. Judas Maccabees was one of the main leaders of this revolt, and he rose up, and they gained victory over the temple in Jerusalem again. They defeated their oppressors, and in doing so, they instituted the festival of lights or dedication, which we know as Hanukkah. They re-consecrated the temple And so every year in December, when our Jewish friends may be celebrating the Festival of Lights, they are thinking about not only the provision of God throughout their lives, in particular, the the same ideas that they celebrated in the Feast of Tabernacles. Matter of fact, the Feast of Lights is called the Feast of the Tabernacles during the December month of the Jewish calendar. But they are lighting those lights to remind them of the victory that God gave them over their oppressors and the re-consecration of the temple and the worship there. So this is more than a time stamp. Let's see that this is more. I mean, John as a writer is giving us a time stamp, and yet we have to understand that the Holy Spirit writing and giving us the inspiration, or giving John the inspiration, helps us see that there is much more to this than just here is Jesus at this time during this period. Because Jesus is revealing himself as the eternal Son of God, the one who deserves all of our worship and our praise. And as these Jews are there in Jerusalem and and Jesus is there in the Feast of the Dedications, it is purposeful that Jesus will declare to them that He is God there in Jerusalem once again. They will not see him as God. They will not give him worship and glory. But in essence, he is even a greater fulfillment of the Feast of Lights because he is God coming in the temple. So while the Jews of our day still light their menorahs, waiting for and being reminded of God's uh, coming and dwelling in the temple, they missed this situation where Jesus is there at the Feast of Lights, God in the flesh before them, and they denied his name and they wanted to kill him. But as John is building throughout his gospel, revealing to us who Jesus is as the eternal Son of God, 
take note with me the progression of Jesus' great declaration of who he is. Remember with me in John chapter 1, as I said, John tells us that he is the eternal Son of God. But Jesus in his earthly ministry begins to reveal this truth. In John chapter 4, Jesus privately tells a Samaritan woman, as she brings up the expectation of the Messiah, Jesus tells her, I who speak to you am he. Right? So privately, he's revealed this to this woman. This woman does not fully believe Jesus because she goes back into the town and she says, this man is telling me things that nobody else can know. Could he be the Christ? Which means the Messiah. So we get a little bit of a taste there. John chapter 5, Jesus heals the crippled man on the Sabbath. And then John comments because of the oppression and the, the aggravation from the Jews of this healing. John comments that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The bites are a little bigger now. John chapter 8 we're getting more of a, a fuller portion as Jesus is clearly stating to these Pharisees and the Jews as the light of the world that all that believe in him will have eternal life. And by the way, that eternal life is something that the Jews only knew God to be the one providing. No man can provide eternal life. Only God is the giver of salvation. And so for Jesus to relate and, and connect himself to the light in the wilderness that led the Jews, the one that provided them salvation for their souls, Jesus is now declaring to them that he is God. And the icing on the cake in that scenario was Jesus saying that Abraham had a faith in him, that Abraham had an expectation that the Messiah would come. And then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Of course, in that scenario, once again, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid and went outside the temple. So the events build to the climax in John chapter 10. This is a climax, by the way, because what we will see in John chapter 11 and throughout the rest of the Gospels is Jesus is now fully turning himself toward Jerusalem. All that will begin to happen will be a journey away from his earthly ministry and toward his imminent death and burial and resurrection. So if we're studying just through John 11 through the end of, of, the, of his gospel account is a section dedicated to the death and the resurrection of Christ, proving that he is the Son of God. But notice the argument. Notice the, the declaration of Jesus as he, engage, as, as he is engaged the, by the Jews. They say, as they gather around him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. How long will you keep us in suspense, they ask. This is only a declaration of their blindness because they have clearly been given plenty of evidence 
plenty of opportunity to see, and yet they ask Jesus, just tell us simply if you are the Christ. Jesus does not answer them yes or no. You know why? Because he already gave them an answer. He already gave them an answer, and he will tell them that the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. That's your answer. I am showing you that I am the Christ. But yet he doesn't particularly answer them because their definition of a Messiah was different from the Messiah that Jesus came to be. They wanted a political leader. They want a restoration of a, 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 a culture, of a social uh, climate. They wanted a restoration of prominence. They wanted to be the nation that they were under King David. And Jesus was looking beyond that to the salvation, not of their politics, not of their ethics, but of their souls. All those things would fall in line when they came and received new lives and new hearts under the new covenant that he would provide by his sacrifice. And so Jesus says to them, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. And now he begins to reveal the truth. We looked, about, we looked at this a little bit last week. But he begins to declare his equality with the Father. That he is not merely just a man, but that he is equal with God. That they are one essence, they are one being, and yet distinct persons. In other words, we could say that he is the omnipotent Son of God, or the omnipotent person of Christ. Notice the parallels In verses 27 through 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. There's a belonging of these sheep to Jesus, that he knows them and they follow him. And similarly, in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The parallel is is that not only does Jesus own the sheep, but the Father owns the sheep. The Father has given the Son the sheep. So there is a power, an omnipotence of possession by both Jesus the Son and the Father. And yet there is distinctly a submission of the Son to the Father. The son has what the father has given him, and yet they distinctly both possess the sheep. We belong to them, father, son, and we could say spirit. They know us as followers of Jesus. We belong to them. Paul reminds us in a, in a, in a more clear declaration that we are owned by God, that we are his property, that we have been bought with a price, that the blood of Christ has purchased us in a transaction of redemption so that we are no longer 
chained to the slave market of sin, but we are now, uh, we are born again and, and, and able to be free people who live as slaves to Christ. A freedom of joy and not a pr- oppression and devaluation. I was reminded of Romans chapter 14 as a, as a reminder for us as believers as we live in this world to be reminded of, of our ownership being in Christ, that we belong to Him. Romans chapter 14 verses 7 through 9 say, For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself for if we live we live to the lord why do we live to the lord because we belong to the lord and if we die we die to the lord so then whether we live or whether we die we are the lord's and for to this end christ died and lived again that we might be both uh, that that he might be lord both of the dead and the living There is a right and an ownership of the sheep. And both the Father and the Son own these sheep. We belong to Him. We have our belonging, our identity. Not an identity in the things of this world, but an identity in the One who gave His life, who died and lived again. Our brothers and sisters of the faith throughout history who have died, have died in Christ and their identity rests in Him. So that the God, the sovereign King over all the earth and His peculiar people are living living differently from the world because we belong to the one who purchased us. But not only does Jesus declare that he owns these sheep, that he and the Father own these sheep, but they secure the sheep. Not only do they own the sheep, but they secure the sheep. His power is so great. The Father's power is so mighty that no one will perish that belongs to him. No one will face the condemnation. No one will be snatched out of their hand. We are preserved in the power that created the universe that changes the dead heart to a living heart. We are preserved and protected. I think in the context, this is also a condemnation to these Pharisees. As if Jesus is saying, and you will not snatch them out of my hand. You will not so lead them astray that those that are saved and those that belong can be lost. You cannot be lost if you belong to the Lord Jesus. You can stray. You will fall into sin. You will struggle in the flesh. But you cannot be lost because you did not in your own power bring about your salvation. So by no means can you Hold tightly to your preservation. Just as you enjoy a salvation by grace alone, you enjoy the preservation by grace alone. Jesus makes his final point. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus says no one 
is able to snatch them out of my hand. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The parallel and the summary, summary in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, if you're a Greek scholar here today, which I would say none of us are, there is a, a great depth of God's word that when we understand the, the Greek text, we find great truth underlying that we don't see in the English translations. One in particular is verse 30. In verse 30, John tells us, or Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The word one is written in such a way to communicate not one person, but it's written in the Greek, which is uh, described in, a, in the neuter sense, which means not one person, but one being, one substance. So John is not, Jesus is not communicating to us that he and the Father are one person. This idea and this truth has led to many Christological heresies throughout the history of the church. The Jews in that day even could not fathom a man being God. Nor could they fathom a, a man standing before them and declaring that he and the Father are one. How is that possible? And yet Jesus so delicately and purposely writes these words, I and the Father, distinctly two persons are one being. One of the most powerful truths and declarations of the beautiful relationship of our God. The Jews clearly understand it because they pick up stones to throw at Jesus for breaking this or violating and being a blasphemous person. And so what we see here this morning is Jesus clearly declaring that his power is equal power to the Father, the equal power we also understand to the Spirit, that the Godhead dwells in perfect unity as one being in three persons. And this is the Jesus that we worship. We worship him and we glorify his name and we are thankful on this end uh, of the, the completed scripture, the completed canon as we say, that we can see more fully than these Jews even could see how Jesus is, is the son. How we can worship him as not just a mere man, but as the God man. And so we praise him this morning, the Lord Jesus, for his power. We take great comfort in knowing of his unlimited, unstoppable power in the universe. And that that love and that power is aimed at us. It is for his glory, but it is aimed toward us. So we can praise him for such an unlimited power. And we can ask him, based upon that power, to do things according to his will. Church, it's not wrong to pray 
believing in a power of God to say, God, if you could somehow heal this affliction in my life, would you do so? Because we, by faith, are believing in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not wrong to pray those things. But we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we trust in that power, but we know that His plan may be something completely distinct or different from our desire. But we praise Him that He could heal us from affliction. But we trust His plan that His affliction may be purposeful. We can pray and ask Him for, by His power, to give us some promotion at work or, or somehow uh, help us financially. And yet we know that even a struggle in those areas could be purposeful and beneficial for our faith in Him. In this world, we may struggle monetarily we may struggle physically we may struggle emotionally and yet we can still be sharpened and molded by his power at work within us for his glory as we trudge through the muck and the mire of this world and yet we still praise him appraise him in affliction appraise him praise him in our circumstances We can praise Him for His power because we know that He is uh, so capable of of taking a loved one, a friend who is lost and without a desire for Jesus, and we know that by His power He could radically remove the scales from their eyes and draw them to Himself. We know that He can do that. And we can pray in that way and, and not be afraid. This is the Jesus that we sing about and that we worship because His power is demonstrated. But we, we know that he will save those people in his timing and for his glory and according to his plan. Those are possibilities that we know Jesus can do. But most importantly, focus on what he has done and the demonstrated power that, that leads us to glorify him. We praise him for his power over death so that we can rise up from death into new life in Christ, that we can have forgiveness of our sins, the shame of guilt, the guiltiness of our failures, so we can have a a new life in Him. We praise Him for His power over sin, which allows us to experience freedom from the slavery and the bondage. the slavery and the bondage, the the wrestling with our flesh that we continually live with day by day, Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death. We have a victory over our lying and our gossip, over our jealousy and discontentment. We have a victory by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection that no longer do we have to live in disunity, but we can live in harmony because of his power. Unity in the church, unity in our family with other believers. And of course, we praise him for his power over Satan. Knowing that the enemy may attack, but we are preserved by his strong hand. 
You're reminded in Ephesians 6 simply that it is the armor of the Lord, not our armor, that protects us from the schemes of the devil. And similarly, we praise him for his power in the church. It is his bride. We know that by his power, he will carry the gospel message to the ends of the earth. So that Julie and Casey in an area that seems almost unreachable and dangerous have the unlimited resources of the power of God and through his church will reach the nations with the gospel. So that just as Jesus has promised, all people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather together in the new heaven and the new earth. They will be there. And they will be there by his power. This is the Jesus that we believe in. This is the power that he demonstrates. Now the Jews didn't have all those works. The greatest work and the greatest miracle that will prove his deity is his death, burial, and resurrection. And yet Jesus has given the blind eye sight. Jesus has given the crippled man strength in his bones. And what we'll see in John chapter 11, he will literally raise the dead to life. But they don't believe. But Jesus logically wants to give them two indisputable proofs of his deity. Of his messianic title. Two. Indisputable proofs. Number one, as I've said, his works. Verse 32, Jesus says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? He says, I've proven. I've proven myself. I've shown you the works that you need to see. Which one are you going to stone me? Or for which one of them are you going to stone me? Can we just as a side Uh, give Jesus the praise and the glory uh, uh, for the grace and the mercy that he's showing the Pharisees right here? I mean, multiple attempts to stone Jesus, and Jesus is still giving them logical arguments to believe? Still carrying out the plan and the purpose of dealing with humanity and their sinfulness and their wretchedness against him? Jesus has given them plenty of reasons to believe, and yet they have only wanted to pick up stones and try to kill him, and yet here he is still explaining himself for the benefit of those who will believe in him. These Pharisees are lost. These Pharisees do not belong to the flock, and yet even by grace and mercy, Jesus is splattering and spraying his grace forward and his mercy forward so that even they still have an opportunity to believe. But they won't, they can't, they're so blinded that Jesus points out to them, hey, remember the blind man that I healed? Remember the crippled man, these works that I did according to the power that the Father has given me? Do you remember those? And the Pharisees are like, nope, all I remember is you breaking the Sabbath. That's what I remember. 
All I remember is, is you leading people away from following us and, and embarrassing us before the masses. That's what, that's what we remember. They cannot see Jesus for who he truly is. They're nearsighted. And I couldn't help but think about us as believers that even in the wrestling with our own flesh and in the weakness of our flesh, we can be, be nearsighted. That we lose sight of heaven and we lose sight of Jesus in, in the difficulties of this world. We, we come in to a, a service on a Sunday morning and, and we're here to worship. Like there's no bones about it. That's what we're here to do. We're here to worship and what's happening we're constantly distracted. Our kids are distracted. Like, am I a good parent? Are people thinking I'm a good parent? We're distracted. Like, am I going to am I going to uh, love these people kindly today? And and am I going to do the things that that I'm I need to do? I, I've got all these things cooking at home. Am, am I going to be able to get home in time so that I can stay on a schedule? And all these things somehow keep us nearsighted, distracted from the focus that we're supposed to have. Now we're not singing songs about Jesus to bide the time. We're singing songs about Jesus because he is our Lord and Savior. He deserves our worship and our praise. And so we have to look beyond those things. We can't allow the, the weaknesses of our flesh or the bottomless cave of our fear or the crashing storm of our circumstance. We have to see through those things and see Jesus. We can't lose sight like a, a sailor loses sight of the lighthouse because he's staring at the crashing waves around him. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that like these great cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside those weights and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us looking to Jesus. And then the writer reminds us of who this Jesus is. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. If you forgot the Jesus who established and perfects your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seating at the right hand of God. You worship the one worthy of worship. You worship him. And in your enduring of the trials of this world, the race that is set before you, remind yourself that the Jesus that you worship has had and continually has victory over those storms and those trials. And you are victorious in him. Endure as he endured the cross. As he despised the shame. Because now he is seated at the right hand of God, the writer of Hebrews says. The place of honor. He endured the shame. He endured the cross. But there came a time when he ascended to heaven and he received all the glory and all the honor. And one day we will, in our endurance, persevere to the end and we will be in his presence 
free from this sickness, free from this pain, and we will enjoy the, and delight in the Savior and his glory, escaping the trials that we face, knowing that they made us more into the image of Christ. So the works are proof of his deity, but also the words. I ask you to turn to Psalm 82. Flip over there with me. Such a unique reference from the Old Testament. Psalm 82, just eight verses. Read with me, please. God has taken his place in the divine council, says Asaph. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Notice the gods there is little g. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's little G, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, Jesus quotes this psalm from Asaph. And what's interesting about this psalm is that um, much to the discussion and disagreement about who these little g gods are. Some people say that Jesus is speaking to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. That they are the ones who received the law and, and, and by being elevated as, and being chosen as God's instruments, they are not capital G gods, they are little g gods, meaning that they are called to uh, to met out or to, to, to take out the word of God and the, the justice of God because God entrusted them with his word. Other people say that, uh, that these little g gods are the angels, the angelic beings. That God is referencing their fall and their, their wickedness. But what's interesting about that is that they are said that they will die like men and that can't reference angels. I think this is best interpreted as meaning the judges of Israel. Particularly the judges of Israel. This divine counsel is, is a narrative in, in verse 1 of Psalm 82 that God is, is speaking to this uh, these appointed judges over Israel. As the little g gods, he holds judgment. God had entrusted them to take the word of God and to use it as a means of uh, bringing forth divine judgment. Just like we believe today that leaders in our country are, are appointed by God himself and that they are responsible and have God's word to use to make wise uh, judgments based upon his word. Well, the judges of Israel particularly had God's word. But what were they doing? They were judging unjustly. They were showing partiality. They were unjust judges. 
And so Asaph is speaking condemnation toward these men. He's speaking condemnation, and in the end, he summarizes it basically by saying, Arise, O God, you're the judge of the earth. You shall inherit all the nations. In other words, even our earthly leaders, even the judges who had the word of God, will fall and fail and let us down. They will not judge justly, but the God of the earth is a just judge. Now, Jesus references this for two reasons. One, because I think he, he, he references this one because he is relating these Pharisees to unjust judges. These are the, this, is, this is exactly the condemnation that belongs to the Pharisees. They are men that had the scriptures, they had God's word, and yet they were dealing unjustly. They're the whitewashed tombs. They're the ones who were not taking care of the oppressed, of the fatherless, of the afflicted. They were trying to profit themselves from their prosperity, from their title, from the appointment that God had given them. But secondly, and the most important, is that Jesus' logical argument for them is this. If in the Old Testament which is true, and which has been given by God, and which cannot be shaken, if that declares men as gods, if God in his wisdom and his inspiration called these appointed men gods, then why are you upset that I am called the Son of God? You see the logic? Why are you so upset and saying that I'm a blasphemer if these men were called gods and I am calling myself the son of God by which I have shown proof and evidence in that? Are you disagreeing with God's word is their argument or is his argument? And of course all they are going to fall back on is their offense at the Lord Jesus. They never answer. They merely seek to arrest him. But Jesus goes further. He says, look, don't believe who I am. Just believe what I've done. And you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The words of God. He's saying, trust them. See the connection. But we know, of course, that there is no way for them to see and understand if they are blind guides. But I wonder this morning if you have believed the proofs that Jesus has given us. Proofs that he is the eternal son of God. John ends his gospel account as all the other three gospel writers in the same way. Jesus dies. He is a substitute for sin. He's buried as, as, a, as a man. And he rises victoriously from the grave. The greatest proof. Do you believe that resurrection? Are you resting in that power and trusting the proof that God has given you? That if Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, so you also, if you believe and trust in him, if you have put your faith in him and turned from your sin, you also will be raised as well into new life in Christ. That's the proof. 
People say, well, I just want to, if God would just prove himself to me and, 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 and reveal himself to me, I would believe in him. He did in the person of Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at his, his, the historicity. Look at the prophecies and all the things that point to him, written by hun- different types of authors, hundreds of years before, all pointing and culminating with continuity to one man that fulfilled them all. Trust the archaeology that that backs up and undergirds the scriptures. There's so many different proofs that point to Christ, but the greatest is that he rose from the grave. What more evidence does a person need? But lastly, we finish with the effective provision of Christ. Verse 39, they sought to arrest him, but he once again escaped from their hands. By the way, Jesus escapes from their hands because it's not time for him to die. He's already told us he says when it's time for him to die. This is a, a, a beautiful and, and perfect conclusion to this story and to John's um, writing. Because again, he is concluding as he began. Jesus goes away. He crosses the Jordan to the place where John had first been baptizing. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Think about this. Jesus has retired Jesus has gone back to where his ministry began. Jesus has gone back to where he was baptized. Where John the Baptist had foretold of the Messiah to come and then looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water. The Father affirms and, 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 and verbally commits that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And now Jesus has returned to that place. And there, as he's uh, in that place, retiring, uh, kind of uh, purposefully uh, taking himself away from the conflict until his appointed time, many people still follow him. And those many people know what John had been preaching. They knew of his ministry and the word of God held true. The word of God that John had preached as a prophet of God, preaching of a Messiah to come, knowing that Messiah would do many miracles like healing the blind, raising the dead, making the lame healed so they can walk, all these these. Uh, landmark or these signposts pointing to the Messiah, they now see that all those things point to Jesus. They now see that John was not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah because everything that John said about this man was true. Everything. And so what is the provision here? Salvation. Many believed in him there. Many believed from the preaching ministry of John and later the, the, the fulfillment, 
of, of Jesus coming and fulfilling those things that John had preached, people came to know Christ. God provided salvation. We could say it another way, kind of as we conclude John chapter 10, Jesus called many more sheep into the fold. He provided them salvation. By hearing the words, they responded when they encountered Jesus. I'm so encouraged this morning by this little section because of the I think it gives great prominence and power to the preaching ministry. When I think about my responsibility, the responsibility of these elders is that our job is to speak truthfully about the word of God so that you can come to know him so that you may believe he is the eternal son of God and have life in his name. And this this conclusion to John is that very thing. If, If John's head had not been severed from his body, he would be able to stand back and see the fruits of a preaching ministry. That everything that he had been told and understood about the Messiah had come to fruition in Jesus... And now many people were believing in him. And so I was, I was just, I was revigorated. I was refreshed by the mission of our lives as believers. To allow our lives to be molded and shaped by the preaching ministry by the power of the preaching of the gospel. Not my power, but the power of the word itself. I'm so encouraged this morning that we stand together, not saying that programs and places and people uh, establish a a power in in the church, but that it's the word of God that, that changes lives and hearts. That the word of God is what brings forth transformation. And so as we stand here today, today, let's be reminded and let's be reaffirmed that this is what Redemption Community Church and as individual sheep of the fold adhere to. That this is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes and that it's found in his word and that's what we build this ministry upon. And that's what you form your life upon. That we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He can do all things. That he knows all things. That he is everywhere. And that in the the truth of the doctrines of, of Christ, we can rest in him and what he commands us and teaches us throughout our lives. So let me close with this verse. As Paul tells Timothy... He says, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. Knowing from whom you've learned it and how your childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which were were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Amen. Let's pray.